You're in good voice today. Blessing to be able to sing together. To ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke 8. We want to look at verses 19 to 21. And while you're doing that, let me say that we do appreciate the work of our, our tech people. You know, if it, uh, if it was just up to me, the only changes I could make would be just raise your voice. That's uh, just not enough these days, of course, so we thank the Lord for the techie folks who, boy, I sure hope you're able to get stuff out of the message and not just worrying about serving everyone else, and uh, we appreciate their labors. Well, Luke 8, Luke 8 and verses 19 to 21, let me read that, Luke 8, 19 to 21, then His, that is, the Lord Jesus, his mother and brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to seek you, to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. I was baptized around... 1970, and it was the tradition at that time in that church that when the baptismal candidate came up out of the water, the congregation would sing, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood, joint heirs with Jesus as we travel the sods. For I'm part of the family, the family of God. So you see, if you're a Christian, you can sing that song honestly and accurately. And if you can sing that song, uh, then you are greatly blessed. You're a child of God. You're a son or a daughter of the living Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus has something to say here in that passage I just read about the family of God and about who those people are who honestly and accurately could sing a song like the one I mentioned. Who are those people who are actually part of the family of the Lord Jesus? There comes a point, of course, as you will know from reading through Luke, when his family approached the Lord Jesus during his teaching and preaching ministry, his family come to him. Now, some say they came because they were concerned about him. We read, for instance, in Mark 3, 21, and when his family heard it, they heard some reports about him, they went out to seize him, can you imagine? And they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Family members saying he's out of his mind, and so they try to seize him and bring him back, take him out of the public spotlight. Now, ESV says his family. Uh, Now, literally, that's his own. The New King James, in fact, translates that in Mark 3.21, his own people. But uh, family is a good way to translate that. Because family is, well, they're the ones who are your own people. 
They belong to you. They're your own ones. There's a song I love entitled Irish Heartbeat. And part of it, the words go like this. Oh, won't you stay, stay a while with your own ones. Don't ever stray, stray so far from your own ones. Because the world is so cold. Don't care nothing for your soul that you share with your own ones. You share your soul with your own ones at a number of different levels, actually. Well, the Lord Jesus' family, his own ones, they, they come to him, his mother and his brothers. And exactly why they came is not stated, but they came to him. This is not really important. We don't need to know exactly why, and hence we're not told. I should add, by the way, that the Lord Jesus did have brothers and sisters. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church says that the word brothers should be translated cousins. But of course, the word is, in the Greek, it's adelphos, which you will certainly recognize. And uh, you will know, of course, that Philadelphia, Phil, and Adelphia means the city of brotherly love. It's not the city of cousinly love. It's the city of brotherly love, because that's what the word means. And so we should just let the Bible speak for itself. And so when the Bible says that they're his brothers, you know, they're actually his brothers. And of course, the reason the Roman Catholic Church wants to say cousins is because they're trying to protect a doctrine that was announced in 553 at a council, which said that Mary was perpetually a virgin. But a hundred years after that, a pope by the name of Martin I, whoever he was, don't know anything about him personally, but he began to expand on how Mary in three ways, three areas, and three aspects was perpetually a virgin. But of course, we read in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 6 and verse 3, it says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So we not only know from the clear testimony of the Bible that Jesus had brothers, but we even know the names. And we know he had at least two sisters, though we don't know their names. So we'll just let the Bible speak for itself and not try and twist and distort. And we find then that his family, his mother and his brothers, they come and they come to seek him and to see him. And the Lord then takes this as an opportunity to teach something about the family of God, to teach something about those who really and truly are part of his family. And in order to try and understand what the Lord Jesus says, we're going to look at family qualifications, family privileges, and family responsibilities. So we'll begin with family qualifications. How do you get to be in the family of God? Apparently, it's got nothing to do with physiological and biological connections. There's something else there. So how do you get to be part of the family of God? <clears throat> now, many years ago at, uh, at the Kerry Conference, 
I heard one of Brian Robinson's grandchildren uh, pulling rank on other children. There were some other children, and they, it seems, had been talking about Pastor Brian in such a way that it seemed like they were claiming some special relationship with him. And I heard one of his granddaughters talking to the other children who were, you know, claiming this relationship. And I heard her say, he's not your grandpa, you know. Well, that settled that. But you see, the point is, you're, you're not part of the family. You're not, you think, but you're not really part of the family. In verse 21, we find that Jesus says that it's not physiological aspects that make you part of the family of God. The ones who are close to me, the ones who are like mother and brother to me, this has nothing to do with a a physical connection. No, my real family are those who have the word and they do the word. They hear the word and they live out the word. Those are the ones who are really part of the family of God. And when you read that, the question is, is that salvation by works? Is that something like this? Look, if you do this and you do the other and you do a little bit more, then you'll become part of the family of God. If you go and you work and you give and you sacrifice and you do the will of God... You do all of these things and you'll become part of the family of God and just work hard enough at obeying the will of God and you'll get there in the end. Is that what it's talking about? Well, we know it cannot be that. Religion is a religion of grace and not works. And Paul is adamant about that again and again in his epistles. So we know it's not that. So what you have to do is compare what is being said here with what is said in other passages. And other passages, passages will shed light on what is being said here. We'll come to understand what this whole aspect of doing the will of God has to be, and the way it has to be understood. But we have to think, first of all, about how you become part of the family of God. Let me say a number of things about that. First, that you're part of the family by divine choice. If you're a Christian today, and if you when you prayed today, said, Father, and you prayed in the name of your elder brother, Jesus, well, you're part of the family of God by divine choice. Because of a miraculous choice of God. We read in Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. If you call God Father, it's because God chose to make you His child. Sovereign election. Jesus says in John 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, when God changed you and gave you a heart to go out to him, well, then you chose God because he made you willing in the day of his power. So you chose him eventually. But that was after he chose you. 
And after He made you alive. If you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, it's by sovereign grace. I chose you out of the world, says the Lord Jesus in John 15. And He looked you over thoroughly. And before the foundation of the world, God looked you over thoroughly and saw all the horrible aspects of who you are. I'm not insulting you. You know from the Bible what you're really like. You go read Romans 3, 10 to 20. You go read Jeremiah chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 1. And God looked you over. And despite all the horrible aspects of who you are, He chose you to make you His child. So if you're a child of God, if you're part of the family today, it's by sovereign grace. It's by divine choice. What's more, you're part of the family by adoption. You've been adopted into the family of God. Again, in Ephesians 1, this time verse 5, you read, In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. I know a family, knew a family who... Well, they went to Russia to find a child that they might adopt. They went to the other side of the world to get their adopted child. God, your father, bridged what really is, from a human perspective, an unbridgeable chasm in order to make you his child, in order to adopt you into his family. God, your Father, came from heaven in the person of His Son and came from glory to the grime and filth of this world in order to make you His child. You become a child because of adoption. You're part of the family also by special birth. By special birth, you were born again. There was a moment, there was a point in time when by grace you were born again. You were born from above. This was not an ordinary birth. This was not a biological birth. This was a born again experience. This was being born from above. This was being born of water and the Spirit. This was a remarkable transformation. And you didn't choose that birth any more than you chose your first birth. But God, who knows all about you, chose that at a particular point He would bring about a rebirth, this radical transformation, a spiritual birth, as a result of the power, the rolled-up sleeve of the mighty arm of God. That's what happened, and so you were born again. And that was your entrance into the family of God. So it wasn't your effort. It wasn't your giving. It wasn't all the work you do in the kingdom. Oh no, it's, it's all of grace. You were, you were part of the family because of divine choice and because of adoption and because of a special birth brought about by the might and the power of God. And you're part of the family now because of a covenant. You're part of the family because of God's covenant. In Genesis 15, you read about God making a covenant with Abraham. And you read about God, how well, they called it cutting a covenant. Why did they call it cutting a covenant? Well, because, and you can see it, and you read Genesis 15, you see it happening. God does it. And what he does is he takes an animal, and, 
and he'll cut that animal up into pieces and put them in two rows, and then God passes through that row with broken pieces of animal on either side, and he goes through that, that row of animal flesh. And you know what he's saying? He's saying, I am in covenant with Abraham, and I make covenant promises to Abraham. And if I do not fulfill the conditions of the covenant as stipulated, may this happen to me. God is cutting a covenant. He's saying, I will not go back on my promises to you. And if I do, may this happen to me. May I be cut up into little pieces. It's extraordinary. And it's especially extraordinary when you think of the kind of promises that God makes to people in covenant relationship with him. In 2 Corinthians 6, we read, God says, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And the covenant God says, over my dead body will I go back on my promises to you. You're part of the family, you see, and God is your father because of a covenant that he made with you, a covenant that he cannot break and that he will not break. And he will fulfill all those promises and he he will be a father to you all the days of your life. How extraordinary is that? Not of works, lest anyone should boast. But if you're part of the family today, it's because God has made a covenant with you, a covenant. Oh, it's a gracious covenant. And it's a covenant full of promises that are glorious and that he must fulfill. If you're part of the family, it's by covenant. And if you're part of the family, it's by blood. It's by blood. When you were born into a biological family, it involved a good deal of blood. Oh, but nothing like this. What it costs to make you part of the family. It is no small thing that you're a Christian today. It's no small thing that you call God Father. Because it costs the blood of Christ. Again, we read in Ephesians 1. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood. If you're a child of God, if you've called God Father today, it's at the cost of the blood of His Son. Thomas Boston says, God the Father takes the pen and dips it in the blood of His Son and crosses the sinner's accounts out and blots them out of His debt book and the price is paid by Jesus and your debt is wiped away by Jesus. And you are covered by the blood of Jesus. It cost him his life to give you life in the family. It's extraordinary. It's not through your efforts. It's not because of your deserving. It's not a result of your accomplishment. It's all of grace. A mighty, gracious sacrificial, astounding, sufficient work of God, and now you're a child of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Father 
and a brother to Jesus. And so we read in John 1, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, who uh, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, got nothing to do with biological connection, born not of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so consider, just take a moment today, consider the extraordinary lengths God has gone to in order to make you a child of God. You know, in the world and in secular culture, people will, if they believe in God at all, they'll make flippant remarks about how everybody's a child of God. Well, there is a sense in which they're children of God just by virtue of being created. But in truth, the Bible says, by nature, you're now children of wrath. You are children of your father, the devil, Jesus says, if you're not a Christian. But the lengths that God has gone to by his grace and through the sacrifice of Christ to make you a child of God, it's absolutely astounding. And you ought to praise him today. You ought to be astonished. You ought to be moved to adoration. He's made you his child. Family qualifications, an astounding thing to contemplate. Now, secondly, family privileges. Family privileges. Now, when we talk about a mother and about brothers, we're talking about a close family. We're talking about immediate family. So this is Jesus' immediate family that's coming to seek him out. They want to talk to him or whatever purpose they have in mind. These are uh, the intimate ones, not the extended family, but the close ones. And the Lord Jesus says that my close ones, they're the ones who do the will of my Father. They're the ones who uh, hear and obey. These are the intimate ones. How extraordinary then for, for us to be able to say that uh, as those who hear and obey the word, we are the intimate ones of Christ. We are intimate family. When you begin to think about that, you begin to feel the sense of astonishment that John uh, articulated in 1 John 3, 1, where he says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has shown to us, that he has made us his own ones. We were strangers, and we were cut off, and we were in the world, and we were without God, and we were without hope in the world. And God, by his grace, has made us his own ones, his intimate family. Like, like mother and brother and sister to Jesus. How extraordinary. And the privileges we have are wrapped up in this, in this relationship that we sustain now by grace with the Father and with the Son the tremendous privileges we have as the children of God are wrapped up in the fact that God is our Father and Jesus is our elder brother. Let me try and just touch on that, well, some of the aspects of these privileges. For instance, think about this. Our Father knows all about us. Your Father knows all about you. Nothing hidden about you when it comes to your Father. Psalm 38, verse 9 says, Lord, 
All my desire is before you. And my sighing is not hidden. Have you sighed today? You know what it means to sigh. You're, well, you're weary. And you're worn down. And another day stretches out before you and another week beckons. And you want to serve the Lord. Your ambitions are holy. Your aspirations are righteous. And you want to honor him, but you're weary. And so you sigh. And the psalmist says, Lord, my sighing is not hidden from you. The Lord knows all about you. Psalm 38 also, in Isaiah 38, we're also told, God says to Hezekiah, I have heard your prayer and I've seen your tears. God knows all about us. 1 Kings 8, 18, whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. See, God sees the heart. God knows that it was in his heart an intention to glorify God, to build a temple for the Lord, not to do something good. And so when you want to do something good, others may know nothing at all about it, but you see, God knows. Thomas Watson says, if there was a good intention he takes notice of it. I think that's so wonderfully encouraging. Most people don't see your good intentions. Unless you announce it to them, which is probably not a good idea because then you're drifting off into areas you shouldn't. But most people don't know your good intentions. But as Watson says, if there is a good intention, he takes notice of it. He also knows your sins. He really knows your sins. Today, people think they know your sins and you know, they, uh, they cancel you very quickly, whether you're guilty or not. You know what it's like in the world today. But the Lord knows. He really knows. He really sees. And He sees the things you've done wrong and He sees the things you have done right. And he knows the good and he knows the bad. And the extraordinary thing is, he loves you still. He loves you no matter what. He loves you and he cares for you, even though he knows all about you. The second thing is that our Father is present with us. Our Father knows all about us and our Father is present with us. And in fact, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Imagine that. Imagine God saying to you, I'll never leave you, never forsake you. You have a father who never will leave you. You have a father who will not forsake you. The best parent in the world will eventually leave you. We'll lay them in the ground. We'll cover them over with sod. And they will leave you. You have a father who will not leave you ever. Can never be taken away from you. To have the father present with us, always. It's wonderful to have family present with us. I remember a day, a very bad day, and I remember being hugged by one of my grandchildren. And um, it occurred to me today when I was preparing 
that I don't remember the crisis. It was some church crisis. I mean, there's always some church crisis going on, right? And I, don't, I honestly don't remember the crisis, but I remember the hug. <laughs> I remember where I was. I remember who it was. I won't say anything just in case I embarrass them. <laughs> hey, Brookie. <laughs> but uh, but um, I, uh, yeah, I don't remember what the situation was. I just remember the feeling of the hug. So now, look, if having family with you means that much, what does it mean to have God the Father always with you? No matter what. If my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will not forsake me. See, our Father knows all about us. Our Father is present with us. Our Father sanctifies us. The Bible says of God in Hebrews 11 that He is not ashamed to call us, to call, He is not ashamed to be called our God. Now think about that because if you think about it for a moment, you'd expect that He'd be ashamed to be called our God. I mean, I know these people, I know what they're like, I know my heart, and I would think God would be just ashamed. But then we also read in Hebrews about the Lord Jesus. In chapter 2, it says that he is not ashamed to call us his brother. He is not ashamed to be called our brother. Even though we're so filthy, even though we reflect so badly on the family, perhaps there are people in your family and you think of them, well, you know, they have brought shame on the family. There they are. They're outliers and their behavior and their conduct, it's brought shame on the family. Truth is, you bring shame on the family of God. I bring shame on the family of God. But God is not ashamed to be called my God, and the Lord Jesus is not ashamed to be called my brother. That's how gracious and that's how good he is. Having said that, he's also not satisfied with leaving me in my filth. He's not ashamed, he's not, a, he's not uh, he, he will not leave you in the condition in which he finds you, and his purpose is to make you grow in holiness. His purpose is to make you more sanctified day by day. And sometimes uh, that's a difficult process, that's a painful process. Now John 17, 17, the Lord Jesus prays to the Father and says, sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth. And that's the fundamental process. God uses his word to make us grow in holiness and he uses his word to make us become more and more like Christ. But sometimes that process is a painful one and we read about it in Hebrews 12, 3 to 11, especially verse 11, which says, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And sometimes what God has to do with you and with me, with each and every child, is to prune. He prunes the plant. He cuts the plant back. And he cuts it. And Hebrews 12 says it's a painful process. You've got bits lopped off. You're having to cut off right hands and pluck out right eyes. You're having to put to death the deeds of the body. It's a difficult process, it's a painful process, and frankly, it's a humiliating process. It's humiliating to see, oh, you, 
you thought you've made some progress. I mean, I thought I learned that lesson, but it, but it seems I haven't. I mean, how many times have I not learned that I need to trust? And how many times do I forget that? To be honest with you, the, the troubles we've had over the last two, three years, that's a process of pruning. That's not just people at work, you see. That's God at work. Life doesn't unfold just willy-nilly according to the whims and will of men. No, our circumstances are all ordained and purposed by God. We don't go through anything but that God has a purpose in it. And one of his great purposes always is to make us more holy. So that's been his purpose. It's been to prune us. Been to make us more righteous. I'm 66, but... You know, the work of God isn't even close to being done. There's so much work that still needs to be done in order to make this child like that child. This son like that son. Holy and righteous and perfect. Oh, there's so much work to cut this off and prune that away. And mortify that. But we have such a, such a loving father. That he'll keep doing it. Because he's predestined us. To conformity. To his son. And one day. You're going to be spotless. And you're going to be bright. And shining. And glorious. In that you're fully conformed to the image of your elder brother. You'll look just like him. The family likeness will be spot on. And they'll look at you. And they'll look at the father. And they'll say, well, he's just like his father. She is just like her dad. They are just like their Abba. And the work of sanctification by the Father, through the Spirit, will be done. Our Father will, oh, he'll sanctify us. And then our Father cares for us. Because you see, if you're a Christian, you're never out of his care. You may feel that you're out of his care, but you're not. You may think with the apostles, Lord, don't you care that we... You can finish that sentence. But you'd be wrong to think that he doesn't care. You'd be wrong to imagine that he is indifferent to your suffering. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. And the Lord exercises wise care. You see, he knows what's best. And we hope as parents that we know what's best for our children. But frankly, we don't always know what's best, but God is the only wise God. He knows. He has an unerring knowledge of what's best for you, and he will never bring you through anything that is not the wisest thing to bring a child through. He knows, for instance, what affliction to bring you through. Now, it's easy for us to accept that he knows the wisest good experience, we have no trouble with that. But he also knows what the best affliction is to bring into your experience 
that will do you the most good. He knows that, and he's committed to doing that. He knows how to make evil things, the evil things that happen in the lives of all of us, he knows how to make evil things work for your temporal and your eternal good. That's the kind of care the Father exercises. It's wise care. And it's of tremendous benefit and blessing to us that he knows what is best. As a, a writer some years ago said, if God would concede me his omnipotence for 24 hours, you would see how many changes I would make in the world. But if he would give me his wisdom too, I would leave things as they are. And several people have said that over the years. If I had the power to change your circumstances, I would. If I had God's wisdom, I would not. Which means, and I understand this is a hard pill to swallow. This is a difficult doctrine to accept. It's a truth that sometimes gets stuck in our craw. But the fact is, that what's happening to you is the best thing for you. And if you want to take issue with me on that, please know that I, I understand how hard that is. I really do. But it's true. What's happened to you is the best thing for you. Because God knows what is best, and he does what is best. Our Father's care is wise. Our Father's care is necessary. He provides us with the things we need. He <clears throat> doesn't provide us with the things we want because we don't always know what we should have. Rarely do. And in fact, John Stott said uh, years ago that uh, if I thought and I believe that God would answer every prayer of mine in the affirmative, I'd stop praying. No, God is too wise and too good. And he gives us what we really need. Thomas Watson, I'm going to read a lengthy section because, well, because it's gold. So, so just try and, try and follow. He says, his children, God's children, may not have a liberal sharing of things in this life. They may have but little meal in the barrel. They may be drawn low and almost dry, but they shall have as much as God sees to be good for them. Those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing, Psalm 34. If God gives them not what they want, he will give them what is good for them. If he gives them, <clears throat> excuse me, if he gives them not always what they crave, he will give them what they need. If he gives them not a feast, he will give them enough along the way. Let them depend on his fatherly providence. Let them not give way to distrustful thoughts, distracting cares, or useful means, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for us. He gives you necessary care. And then he also gives you constant care. He's always caring for you. As parents, sometimes you fall asleep figuratively. When it comes to the care of your children, you sort of figuratively you fall asleep. We say, well, you fell asleep at the wheel. You know, you just... You forgot about this. You overlooked that. You made a mistake over here. So we, we kind of fall asleep, even though, well, we love them to bits and we love them more than life itself, but, but our care of them is not infallible by any stretch. So we fall asleep. And then sometimes we fall asleep, literally. I mean, you need to sleep. You can't be watching all the time. And sometimes in the middle of the night when they're coughing and they wake you up, it's like, oh, please, 
And then you're, you know, you're not like at your best at that moment. Not your caring, loving, fabulous best. And it's almost resentful. We need to sleep because we're so weak. You have a father who never sleeps and never needs to. And we read this in Psalm 121. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. And so the result is because you have a father who never sleeps. You have a father whose eye is always on you. You have a father whose arm is always around you. Because of that, what we read in Psalm 91 is true of all of us who are believers. No evil shall befall you. No evil shall befall you. Thomas Watson clarifies. It's not said no trouble, but no evil. They get troubled all the time. But no evil, no evil, no trouble that ultimately does you lasting and eternal good, uh, lasting and eternal evil and bad and, and damage and ruin. doesn't bring you to ruination. God uses it for your good. And so that's why he says, no evil shall befall you. And you'll be all right. You are well looked after. Thomas Watson also adds, Christ has drawn the poison out of every affliction. That's brilliant. He has drawn the poison out of every affliction so that it cannot injure God's child. That's his care over you, you see. It's constant care. No situation can arise but that Christ has taken the poison out of it. It cannot harm you. It will be for your good. That situation you're thinking of cannot bring you ultimate harm and will and is being used for your good. The Lord Jesus said to Paul, Acts 18.10, For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. No one can hurt you. Well, we have privileges, don't we? If you're a Christian, I don't know what, I don't know what your life is like. I don't know about the circumstances. Maybe you had just, you know, just a brutal week. Did you have a brutal week? Like a, just a, it'll go down. It's, an, it's a weak horribleness. Remember what Queen Elizabeth said one time? She reflected on the year. She said, it's annus horribleness. That was a bad year. <laughs> Maybe you had a bad week. I'm not making light of it, but I'm saying if you're a child of God, you're okay. You're all right. Lastly, family responsibilities. Try and zip along here. Family responsibilities. <clears throat> I was reflecting on my father this week, and I realized that an indispensable tool in my father's parenting bag was sarcasm. It was just an instrument. He wielded, he wielded that instrument with enthusiasm and <laughs> a certain amount of enjoyment and um, I think precision and I think to great effect. There were occasions when I was young that I didn't listen to my mom and dad. Children, please, sorry about this, but that's not an example that should be set. But the fact is that 
<clears throat> there were times when, when I didn't obey my parents. <clears throat> and on several occasions that I can remember, my father would sit me down and say, now, those ears, are they purely ornamental? For the children, that, what that means is, my dad said to me, see these ears, are they like just for decoration? Because you don't seem to be using them. They're just like decorations on a tree. They're just there for show. They serve no practical function. So is that true, he says? Is it just ornamental? Well, <laughs> I still remember, you know, I remember that comment. So it struck home. See, now this must never be true of a Christian. Your ears must never be ornamental. The Lord Jesus says, my own ones, what are they like? My intimates, my close family, what are they like? Well, they hear the word and they obey. They do what I say. They listen. See, the Lord Jesus also has angels. He has family like us, and then he has angels. In fact, we read in, in Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his holy angels with him. They're not just angels in heaven. They're his. Like all these angels, we talked about some of them on Wednesday where they're just mighty and powerful creatures and there's thousands and thousands and thousands and they belong to him. They're his. They belong to Jesus. Who do you belong to? You ask an angel. Who do you belong to? I belong to the Lord Jesus. He owns me lock, stock, and barrel. And these angels, they belong to him, and so they're obedient. That's why we pray, as we have been instructed, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May, <coughs> excuse me, may I obey just the way the angels do, promptly and completely and happily. That's the way we ought to be. We must obey as the angels do. That's the demand that Jesus makes of us. And that's a theme here. You can read verse 8, verse 15, and verse 18. Again and again, it, you should have ears to hear. Listen carefully. And to really and truly listen means you put it into practice. You do what he says. In the Lord Jesus' family, there was a wonderful example of this. He could only think of, he could think simply of his mother. In Luke 1.38, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And so even though a path is set for her that is going to be an arduous and a difficult one, which will involve suffering and shame, along with glory and splendor, but suffering and shame nonetheless, she says, May it be to me according to your word. And so she obeys and she submits, as should we. And the Lord Jesus himself is the prime. He is the gold standard of obedience. When he comes into the world, it is said of him, I have come to do your will, O God. That's why he lives as he does, because that's the will of the Father. He says himself in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of my Father. I mean, think about just how important it is that you have a meal today. And maybe your stomach's grumbling as I speak. And you think, oh... I can't wait to get home. And Jesus is saying, as important as that is, 
It's more important to me to do the will of my Father. So if we are his brothers and sisters and the Father is our Father, well, we need to be obedient. That's the demand. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's the demand. The rationale, why should we obey? Why should you obey? Well, because he said it. That's all that you need. That's the only rationale you need. If God, if God commands, you obey. But thankfully, there are even more reasons. There's greater rationale beyond that. You should obey because it's safe. The safest thing for you is to do what God says. Read uh, the book of Judges. At the time of the judges, there was no king in Israel, and everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. And look at the catastrophic consequences in that day. And then turn your attention and focus your eyes on today. And this is a day in which people are doing exactly what they want. There's no king in their eyes, and they're doing everything that is good in their own eyes. And look at the consequences. And consider the results and see the suffering. Now it's the safest thing in the world to do what God says. To follow his word and to obey his, his holy scriptures. It's, it's, it makes sense to obey because this is how you grow. I mean, do you want to grow? I mean, even, as a, even if you're a senior saint, you still want to grow. If you're young, you want to grow and become more like the Lord Jesus. Obey his word. Obey his word because that's how you get to know him better. In the scriptures, you read about the Lord Jesus. In the scriptures, you find that the thing we glory in most is that we know God. And it's in the scriptures that you learn more about God. So read his word and do what he says. Obey because this is how you prepare for heaven. Don't be deceived. This is not always where we're going to be. If you're a Christian, you're a citizen of another kingdom. You belong in another place. And you'll be in heaven forever. And John says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. So you get ready. You got ready for church today, didn't you? Come here clothed and in your right mind. And that's good. We're all thankful for that. You know? Lovely when people have showers. Get ready for heaven. Are you, like really, are you getting ready for heaven? Are you preparing for glory? This is not your home, this world. The older I get, the longer I walk more I know. This is not my home. I'm not at home here anymore. My home is somewhere else. I get ready for that. I prepare for that. I prepare by becoming more like Christ. But, you know, I'm thankful I still got work to do here. I got stuff to do. God's given me some work to do. God's given you work to do. How are you going to prepare for that? How are you going to be equipped for that? 
While you read 2 Timothy 3.16 down to chapter 4, verse 2, you find that the Scriptures, that's what's going to equip you. That's how you get ready for that. The Lord has work for you to do before He takes you to glory. Be equipped by being at His Word and doing what He says. And then lastly, obey what He says. Do what He says. Be in His Word and listen to it and live it out because that's what makes you happy. Someone says, blessed, means happy, right? Blessed are these. Who are they? Well, they meditate day and night on the Word. They're in the Word and they're trying to live it out. You want to be happy? You're not a fool. My Christian brother and sister, the way to be happy in life is to hear and to trust and to obey. Do what God says. Live as He wants. Fulfill His commands. Follow the Lord Jesus closely. You'll be happy. If you're not a Christian, don't look anywhere else. There's nothing, nothing in this world that'll satisfy you. You'll go after this and after that and after the other, and you will find again and again and again that there's nothing in it. There's nothing but destruction and death, and it leads to worse. There's nothing there for you. There's absolutely nothing there. Children, young people, there's nothing there for you. The devil will draw you and your friends will tempt you. And the music you might listen to will direct you. But Jesus is the life. And Jesus is the way. And Jesus is the truth. And there is happiness to be found. I mean, true, lasting, eternal happiness to be found only, only in him. Don't be deceived. Come to him today. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, how we thank you for the Lord Jesus the fact that because of him, we may be children of the living God. May that be true of every single person in this room, every single person watching, that by grace they come to believe in the Lord Jesus, find life and forgiveness in him. Grant this, we pray, for his name's sake. Amen.